No escaping the fact that we're an image-driven culture, right? We're told we've got to you know, wear the right clothes, have the right haircut, buy the right car, live in the right neighborhood. Popular magazines and internet blog posts suggest you're only as good as you are thin and blemish-free and how blindingly white teeth you're, you're, you might have. Uh, and this issue of image is not something that just plagues teenagers and adolescents. It's a lifelong thing, isn't it? This caring about how other people perceive us. Because the truth is uh, that how someone envisions himself or herself is one of the most uh, influential facets of a person's worldview. Uh, to the extent that one of my uh, Russian history teachers used to say uh, to the class, that you'll never be able to fully understand someone else's motivation until you understand how they see themselves. Right? can't understand someone else's motivations until you understand how they see themselves. And to which I would add on to that, that we as individuals will never fully understand our own minds until we understand how we are seen by Almighty God. And, and that idea is kind of all wrapped up in the story that comes to us in today's lectionary text from Mark chapter 12. And the story of Jesus' encounter with the representatives of two rival political groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, Two opposing political parties who probably couldn't cooperate with each other long enough to plan a one-car funeral, but who somehow managed to tolerate each other long enough to plot one for our Lord Jesus. And that story takes us to Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading to you verses 13 to 17. So I hope you have your Bibles with you because it's great that it's on the screen, but it's more important that you have one to take home with you. Uh, and brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God. Mark tells us, And they sent to him, meaning Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. And let's pray. God our Father, we pray that in these next fleeting moments, Lord, that you would uh, empty our minds of our preoccupations and distractions, that you would uh, fill our hearts with the gift of your word, uh, and you would let us see Jesus, Father, because that's the whole point uh, of coming to worship today. So we ask these things in his name and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, you know, uh, the Jewish leaders have been looking for some way in the readings up till now to get rid of Jesus, right? I mean, that's been a common theme. And they come up with a plan, a, a plan to trap Jesus and to ask him a question in public, a question that no matter which way Jesus answers is going to put his reputation and possibly his very life in danger. And, and in this story, we see these two groups pitted against each other. Right? One uh, was the Herodians who supported King Herod's reign and his ties to Rome, uh, ties for economic and political reasons, of course, because he was Rome's handpicked man. They had put him in power. The other group was the ultra-religious Pharisees who uh, objected strenuously against anything that promoted Rome. 
because uh, they wanted to be independent again. So remember, when they paid taxes to Caesar, it was a reminder to them that they weren't a free people, that they, they were a conquered nation. And they especially hated this particular imperial tax, the tax that needed to be paid in only Roman coins, which had an image uh, of Caesar on it, right? A, a graven image. They felt violated the Torah law prohibiting all such representations. And so these two groups are about as polar opposite as you could get in their viewpoints. Think, think like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, right? <laughs> That's what we're talking about, okay. But now somehow these guys, these two groups managed to pull together because they had one commonality uniting them and that was opposing Jesus. And so even though these groups were on opposite ends of the political spectrum, yet on this one issue, they joined forces. And actually they had in fact been working together uh, and trying for some time now to come up with an idea to get rid of him. They actually, if you remember way back, they'd been plotting this since the early days when Jesus had healed a man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath. And this is kind of looping all the way back to Mark chapter 3. If you're following along, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Mark tells us another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hands, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, asked those leaders, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Save life or to kill? They remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then these Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That was their first mistake. But from their viewpoint, you can kind of see because of the way that Jesus had, had spoken to and had questioned these religious leaders in the synagogues had not only embarrassed them, but had stopped them from taking action against him at that time because of his popularity. And so these leaders began to devise a plot and they come up with a question of their own. A foolproof question that no matter how Jesus answered, he'd be condemned. Remember, like we said, the, the Jews in Jesus' day were a conquered nation, right? So paying these taxes to Caesar was paying taxes to their oppressor. So, so it's not just these guys were not just denouncing taxes in general, right? I mean, nobody expects anybody to like taxes, right? That's okay. And the Jews in the first century paid lots of different taxes, but Jesus' opponents were not questioning taxes in general. Their question was more specific in its focus in asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Right? So you see what they're doing here, right? In, in the question of would Jesus risk trouble with the Roman government authorities on one hand, or would he risk the loss of respect and support from his own people on the other? And so the questioner attempts to put Jesus in a trap where either a yes or a no answer still gets Jesus in trouble. And I love this part because in reply, we see Jesus do something we've seen him do repeatedly now, right? And that's answer the man's question with what? Another question, right? Not to skirt the issue, but to reveal to the asker more than they expected as a reply from him. Because Jesus, uh, what he's doing here, when he questioned this man and that was speaking to him, is to try to get him to look beyond just the idea of taxes and coins and government and to recognize a bigger picture because there's more to this lesson than just a civics lesson. Right? He wants to make the questioner think about a bigger concept. 
So that when Jesus says to the people, give to God the things that belong to God, they'll realize that they owe everything to him. Everything. Because, hey, here's the thing. What doesn't belong to God? Right? Psalm 24 says it like this. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So, hey, this Caesar guy can stamp his picture all over the place. He can put it on anything he wants to, but that won't get him anywhere near the category of the real king, of the one who created the world and everything in it. So when Christ commands that people give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's, that little coin itself is really a non-issue now. But what matters is what we do with our lives and with all the things in it because we, church, are his currency that we give back to God. Right? We are the currency we give back to God. We are. Our hearts and our minds and our strength and our soul. Everything that's in us. Because all that God first gave to us, we need to give back to him. And so now, uh, in order to make his point that day, Jesus asked to see one of the coins used to pay the tax. Roman denarius, as I said, it's worth about a day's wage. On one side of it is a picture of the emperor and the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. Pretty important title, huh? On the other side is an image of his mother, Livia, dressed as the goddess of peace with the words high priest. And so right away, this, this coin not only has a graven image on it that violates the second commandment, it's also blasphemous too, right? In claiming that the emperor's father and mother were divine. But, you know, that's not the only problem that's going on here. Because when Jesus asks for one of these coins, where does it come from? It comes from the pocket of one of the people asking him the question about handling them. Right? So these coins they claim not to like, they didn't have any trouble scaring one up, did they? You got, you got to kind of picture it with me, right? Jesus says, can anybody show me one of these, these blasphemous, idolatrous coins that you all are so upset about other people handling? And the guy goes, yep, got one right here. Whoops. That was their second mistake. And Jesus said, whose image is on this? Caesar's, the man said. Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. And we read the crowd was amazed. They, they marveled. Not only because Jesus didn't say what they had expected him to say, you know, when they played out this whole conversation in their heads ahead of time. Uh, but mainly because he said things nobody wanted to hear. So they wouldn't listen anymore. Just like the Apostle Paul commented in 2 Timothy, he said, A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And they'll reject the truth and chase after myths. Kind of almost sounds like yesterday, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Right? But you see, these guys questioning Jesus really didn't want an answer. They didn't want any of that sound, wholesome teaching. They just had an agenda. One that rejected anything that didn't fit their purpose. And when their big plan went bust, they didn't stick around to get the point of what Jesus really meant. In fact, if you, if you look in the Apostle Matthew, as he recounted this story in his gospel, he adds the little detail that not only did people marvel at what Jesus said, but they all just left Jesus and went away. They didn't wait to hear anything else. But you see, there was so much more that he could have taught them. One Christian author in his commentary on this passage said this, he writes, I wish that Jewish lawyer that had asked Jesus the question would have stayed around and asked a follow-up question. He says, after Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's, he says, I wish the lawyer would have asked Jesus, well, teacher, what things belong to God? 
And he goes on to write, do you know what I think Jesus would have replied? He said, I think Jesus would have looked at the lawyer and said, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? I love that thought, right? Whose image is on us and who, who do we belong to? Right? Two questions to which the answers of life, death, and eternity hang in the balance. So now when, it, when it comes to the question of our image, that's an easy one, right? We don't have to look too far to find the answer. Genesis 1 tells us that. It tells us then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Okay, so the Bible tells us whose image is on us, but now what? Right. Well, if a coin with an image on it is what belongs to an emperor, then as we talked about in Sunday school, we need to follow the same logic to figure out what belongs to God, which is that which bears the image and likeness of God, right? That's us. And once we recognize that truth, and there's several ways we can begin to give ourselves back to him. And just, just quickly, one of those ways is through worship. Right? Psalm 150 puts it like this. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals and flutes and organs and pianos. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Right? Everything belongs to God, so everything should worship him. And, and y'all, that worship is not just a church. But we need to make it our daily practice to offer God thanks and praise for who he is and all that he's given to us. And secondly, we do it by growing in our faith through the reading of God's word. That's why 2 Timothy 3 says, That word that from childhood you have known, the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Because all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Thirdly, we give ourselves back to God by participating in hands-on missions, just like we do here. That's why Deuteronomy 15 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, and suggest, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brothers, to the needy and to the poor in your, hand, in your land. And so we can give ourselves back to God by loving and serving our neighbors like we do here, like together in collecting for the local schools or in the work that all the ladies do in feeding the homeless in the park and all the mission projects that we have going on. Fourthly, and, and just really quickly, we render ourselves back to God by showing gratefulness to him through not just missions, but in our financial giving. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there will be food in my house, and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there's no more need. Right? We don't talk about money too much in this church, and Praise God for that, because um, you all are so generous. Uh, but tithing is a concrete, physical way for us to not only support the mission and ministry of this church, but even more than that, it's a way to live out our lives in total dependence upon God and gratitude for all that we have, because everything we have, as we said, is from him. And finally, we give ourselves back to God by telling other people about our faith. That's why Mark 16 says, and he said to them, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
because we give ourselves back to God by being willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ and letting people see the impact that Jesus has made on our lives and the joy that he's imprinted on our hearts. And so this last thing kind of wraps them all up because it really then what we give back to him is our whole selves. Given in grateful and thankful praise for all that God has given to us and, and, and not looking back, but with the eyes of our hearts fixed on Jesus and with our feet firmly planted on the path of sanctification and willingly blowing up every bridge back to our old way of life, burning down the ships of our old self-image until we have only left Christ to cling to. Christ who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very selves? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, Jesus is really clear right there. That those who live for themselves never get what they desire and in fact end up with nothing But those who deny themselves and live for Christ find the ultimate expression of their human self-image inside a growing awareness of the creator who made it and of the son who literally embodies it and of the spirit that gives it life. Not not in kind of a weird pantheistic way where anything and everything in the universe is just one part of God, but, but one that at the same time fully realizes we are made in his image. That's like, like Zig Ziglar used to say. Uh, he said, I know three things. I, he said, I know there is a God, and I know I'm not him, and I know you aren't either. <laughs> right? I'm not him, and neither are you. But yet somehow we bear his image. We bear his imprint. We bear his stamp. It's what theologians call Imago Dei, that we are made, in a sense, to resemble God without possessing any divinity of our own, yet in a way that sets human beings apart from the animal world and fits us for the dominion mandate that we're intended to have over the earth. But even more, that enables us to communicate with our maker and to do it rationally and mentally and morally and deliberately. And that's a good thing. You know, because of the fall, we also now have a natural bent to misuse those very same faculties to pursue our own selfish desires and our own short-sighted self-interest. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, made that selfish choice to rebel against their creator, and in so doing, uh, they marred the image of God within us, and they passed on that damaged likeness to all their descendants, including us. And so even though today we still bear the image of God, we also bear the disfiguring scars of sin. But church, the good news is that we have to proclaim today the promise of God, the fruits of the work of Christ, and all of those things are represented in this holy table that we're about to go to. Right? Is that when God redeems an individual and numbers them among the elect, he doesn't just promise to build back better. He actually does something. He makes us over entirely. As Ephesians 4 says, when we put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, and we are born again. Born again into the redemption that's only available by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, where we can finally find our true selves and answer the master's question, whose image is on you? Now, church, if you already have that image and that issue settled in your mind and heart, then praise God for it today. And if you don't, if you haven't, if you don't know, then today is the day to finally answer that question. So don't, don't get stuck on your self-image. Don't get hung up on your own personal interests or 
stick your head in the sand, but repent and believe the gospel today. As the, as the Bible says, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, I'll make them as white as wool. Those who repent will be revived by righteousness, but rebels and sinners will be completely destroyed. And church, this table is the place where that righteous judgment and that relentless love meet and find their fullest expression. And their most tangible image in the very real presence of Jesus Christ who is in with and under bread and wine given and shed for you and for all who believe and are conformed to his likeness. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, is truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise because you've made us in your image. You bought us as your own through the perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we ask that you unite us in your truth and love that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and this place that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And so as we sing our...